If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Yosemite by John Muir, Part 4, Snow Banners. We are taken on a serene journey to the mountaintops where magnificent storm scenery unfolds, showcasing resplendent banners made of abundant snow that are swept by gales and waves with solemn exuberance, creating a truly enchanting and calming spectacle. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Snow Banners It is on the mountain tops when they are laden with loose, dry snow and swept by a gale from the north that the most significant storm scenery is displayed. The peaks along the axis of the range are then decorated with resplendent banners, some of them more than a mile long, shining, streaming, waving with solemn, exuberant enthusiasm, as if celebrating some surpassingly glorious event. The snow of which these banners are made falls on the high Sierra in the most extravagant abundance, sometimes to a depth of 15 or 20 feet, coming from the fertile clouds, not in large angled flakes such as one oftentimes sees in Yosemite, seldom even in complete crystals, for many of the starry blossoms fall before they are ripe, while most of those that attain perfect development as six-petaled flowers are more or less broken by glinting and chafing against one another on the way down to their work. 
This dry, frosty snow is prepared for the grand banner-waving celebrations by the action of the wind. Instead of at once finding rest like that which falls into the tranquil depths of the forest, it is shoved and rolled and beaten against the boulders and out-jutting rocks, swirled into pits and hollows like sand in river potholes, and ground into sparkling dust. And when storm winds find this snow dust in a loose condition on the slopes above the timberline, they toss it back into the sky and sweep it onward from peak to peak in the form of smooth, regular banners, or in cloudy drifts according to the velocity and direction of the wind and the conformation of the slopes over which it is driven. While thus flying through the air, a small portion escapes from the mountains to the sky as vapor, but far greater part is at length locked fast in bossy over-curling cornices along the ridges or in stratified sheets in the glacier cirques some of it to replenish the small, residual glaciers and remain silent and rigid for centuries before it finally melts and is sent singing down home to the sea. But, though snow dust and storm winds abound on the mountains, regular shapely banners are, for causes we shall presently see, seldom produced. During the five winters that I spent in Yosemite, I made many excursions to high points above the wall, in all kinds of weather, to see what was going on outside. From all my lofty outlooks, I saw only one banner storm that seemed in every way perfect. This was in the winter of 1873 when the snow-laden peaks were swept by a powerful norther. I was wakened early in the morning by a wild storm wind, and of course I had to make haste to the middle of the valley to enjoy it. Rugged torrents and avalanches from the main wind flood overhead were roaring down the side canyons and over the cliffs, arousing the rocks and the trees and the streams alike into glorious, hurrahing enthusiasm, shaking the whole valley into one huge song. Yet, as inconceivable as it must seem even to those who love all nature's wildness, the storm was telling its story on the mountain in still grander characters. A wonderful winter scene. I had long been anxious to study some points in the structure of the ice hill at the foot of the upper Yosemite Fall, but, as I have already explained, blinding spray had hitherto prevented me from getting sufficiently near it. This morning, the entire body of the fall was oftentimes torn into gauzy strips and blown horizontally along the face of the cliff, leaving the ice hill dry, 
and while making my way to the top of Fern Ledge to see so favourable an opportunity to look down at its throat, the peaks of the Merced group came in sight over the shoulder of the South Dome, each waving a white, glowing banner against the dark blue sky. As regular in form and firm and fine in texture as if it were made of silk. So rare and splendid a picture, of course, smothered everything else, and I at once began to scramble and wallow up the snow-choked Indian Canyon to a ridge about 8,000 feet high, commanding a general view of the main summits along the axis of the range feeling assured I should find them bannered still more gloriously. Nor was I in the least disappointed. I reached the top of the ridge in four or five hours, and through an opening in the woods, the most imposing windstorm effect I have ever held came full in sight. Unnumbered mountains rising sharply into the cloudless sky, their bases solid white, their sides plashed with snow, like ocean rocks with foam, and on every summit a magnificent silvery banner from 2,000 to 6,000 feet in length, slender at the point of attachment and widening gradually until about 1,000 or 1,500 feet in breadth and as sharply and as substantially looking in texture as a banner of the finest silk, all streaming and waving free and clear in the sun glow, with nothing to blur the sublime picture that they made. Fancy yourself standing beside me on this Yosemite ridge. There is a strange garnish glitter in the air, and the gale drives wildly overhead. But you feel nothing of its violence, for you are looking out through a sheltered opening in the woods, as through a window. In the immediate foreground, there is a forest of silver fir there, foliage warm, yellow and green. The snow beneath them, strewn with their plumes, plucked off by the storm, and beyond broad, ridgy, canyon-furrowed, dome-dotted middle ground, darkened here and there with belts of pine, you behold the lofty, snow-laden mountains in glorious array, waving their banners with jubilant enthusiasm, as if shouting aloud for joy. They are twenty miles away, but you would not wish them nearer, for every feature is distinct, and the whole wonderful show is seen in its right proportions, like a painting on the sky. And now, after this general view, mark how sharply the ribs and buttress and summits of the mountains are defined excepting the portions veiled by the banners, how gracefully and nobly the banners are waving in accord with the throbbing of the wind flood, how trimly 
each is attached to the very summit of its peak, like a streamer at a masthead. How bright and glowing white they are, and how finely their fading fringes are penciled on the sky. See how solid white and opaque they are at the point of attachment, and how flimsy and translucent towards the end, so that the parts of the peaks past which they are streaming look dim as if seen through a veil of ground glass. And see how some of the longest of the banners on the highest peaks are streaming perfectly free from peak to peak across intervening notches or passes, while others overlap and partly hide one another. As to their formation, we find that the main causes of the wondrous beauty and perfection of those we are looking at are the favourable direction and force of the wind, the abundance of snow dust, and the form of the north sides of the peak. In general, the north sides are concave in both their horizontal and vertical sections, having been sculptured into this shape by the residual glaciers that linger in the protecting norther's shadow, while the sun-beaten south sides, having never been subjected to this kind of glaciation, are convexed or irregular. It is essential, therefore, not only that the wind should move with great velocity and steadiness to supply a sufficiently copious and continuous stream of snow dust, but that it should come from the north too. No perfect banner is ever hung on the Sierra peaks by the south wind. At the gale today blown from the south, leaving the other conditions unchanged, only swirling, interfering, cloudy drifts would have been produced, for the snow, instead of being spouted straight up and over the tops of the peaks in condensed currents to be drawn out as streamers, would have been driven over the convex southern slopes from peak to peak like white, pearly fog. It appears, therefore, that shadows in great part determine not only the forms of lofty ice mountains, but also those of the snow banners that the wild wings hang upon them. Earthquake Storms The avalanche taluses, leaning against the wall at intervals of a mile or two, are among the most striking and interesting of the secondary features of the valley. They are from about three to five hundred feet high, made up of huge, angular, well-preserved, unshifting boulders, and instead of being slowly weathered from the cliffs like an ordinary talus, they were all formed suddenly and simultaneously by a great earthquake that occurred at least three centuries ago. And though thus hurried into existence in a few seconds or minutes, 
They are the least changeable of all the Sierra solid beds. Excepting those which were launched directly into the channels of swift rivers, scarcely one of their wedged and interlacing boulders has moved since the day of their creation, and though mostly made up of huge blocks of granite, many of them from ten to fifteen feet cube, weighing thousands of tons with only a few small chips, trees and shrubs make out to live and thrive on them, and even delicate herbaceous plants, Drapiera, Colomia, Zashuniera, etc., soothing and colouring their wild, rugged slopes with gardens and groves. I was long in doubt on some points concerning the origin of these taluses. Plainly enough, they were derived from the cliffs above them, because they are of the size of scars on the wall, the rough angular surface of which contrasts with the rounded, glaciated, unfractured parts. It was plain, too, that instead of being made up of material slowly and gradually weathered from the cliffs like ordinary taluses, Almost every one of them had been formed suddenly in a single avalanche and had not been increased in size during the last three or four centuries, for trees three or four hundred years old are growing on them, some standing at the top close to the wall without a bruise or broken branch, showing that scarcely a single boulder had ever fallen among them. Furthermore, all these taluses throughout the range seemed by the trees and lichens growing on them to be of the same age. All the phenomenons thus pointed straight to a grand, ancient earthquake. But for years, I left the question open and went on from canyon to canyon, observing again and again measuring the heights of taluses throughout the range on both flanks, and variations in the angles of their surface slopes, studying the ways their boulders had been assorted and related and brought to rest, and their correspondence in size with the cleavage joints of the cliff from whence they were derived, cautious about making up my mind. But at last, all doubt as to their formation vanished. At half past two o'clock of a moonlit morning in March, I was awakened by a tremendous earthquake, and though I had never before enjoyed a storm of this sort, the strange, thrilling motion could not be mistaken, and I ran out of my cabin, both glad and frightened, shouting, a noble earthquake, a noble earthquake, feeling sure I was going to learn something. The shocks were so violent and varied, and succeeded one another so closely that I had to balance myself carefully in walking, as if on the deck of a ship among waves, and it seemed impossible that the high cliffs of the valley could escape being shattered. 
In particular, I feared that the sheer-fronted sentinel rock, towering above my cabin, would be shaken down, and I took shelter back of a large yellow pine, hoping that it might protect me from at least the smaller outbounding boulders. For a minute or two, the shocks became more and more violent, flashing horizontal thrusts mixed with a few twists and battering, explosive, upheavaling jolts, as if nature were wrecking her Yosemite temple and getting ready to build a still better one. I was now convinced before a single boulder had fallen that earthquakes were the talus-makers and positive proof soon came. It was a calm, moonlight night, and no sound was heard for the first minute or so, save low, muffled, underground, bubbling rumblings, and the whispering and rustling of the agitated trees, as if nature were holding her breath. Then suddenly, out of the strange silence and strange motion, there came a tremendous roar. The eagle rock on the south wall, about a half a mile up the valley, gave way, and I saw it falling in thousands of great boulders I had so long been studying, pouring to the valley floor in a free curve luminous from friction, making a terrible, sublime spectacle. An arc of glowing, passionate fire, fifteen hundred feet in span, as true in form and as serene in beauty as a rainbow in the midst of the stupendous, roaring rock storm. The sound was so tremendously deep and broad and earnest, the whole earth, like a living creature, seemed to have at last found a voice and to be calling to her sister plants. In trying to tell something of the size of this awful sound, it seems to me that if all the thunder of all the storms I had ever heard were condensed into one roar, it would not equal this rock roar at the birth of a mountain talus. Think, then, of the roar that arose to heaven at the simultaneous birth of all the thousands of ancient canyon taluses throughout the length and breadth of the range. The first severe shocks were soon over, and eager to examine the newborn talus, I ran up the valley in the moonlight and climbed upon it before the huge blocks, after their fiery flight, had come to complete rest. They were slowly settling into their places, chafing, grating against one another, groaning and whispering, but no motion was visible except in a stream of small fragments pattering down the face of the cliff. A cloud of dust particles, lighted by the moon, floated out across the whole breadth of the valley forming a ceiling that lasted until after sunrise, and the air was filled with the odour of crushed Douglas spruce from a grove that had been moved down 
and mashed like weeds. After the ground began to calm, I ran across the meadow to the river to see in what direction it was flowing and was glad to find that down the valley was still down. Its waters were muddy from portions of its banks having given way, but it was flowing around its curves and over its ripples and shallows with ordinary tones and gestures. The mud would soon be cleared away, and the raw slits on the banks would be the only visible record of the shaking it suffered. The upper Yosemite Fall, glowing white in the moonlight, seemed to know nothing of the earthquake, manifesting no change in form or voice, as far as I could see or hear. After a second startling shock, about half past three o'clock, the ground continued to tremble gently, and smooth, hollow rumbling sounds, not always distinguishable from the rounded, bumping, explosive tones of the falls, came from deep in the mountains in a northern direction. The few natives fled from their huts to the middle of the valley, fearing that angry spirits were trying to kill them, and as I afterwards learned, most of the Yosemite tribe, who were spending the winter at their village on Bull Creek, 40 miles away, were so terrified that they ran into the river and washed themselves, getting themselves clean enough to say their prayers, I suppose. I asked Dick, one of the natives with whom I was acquainted, what made the ground shake and jump so much? He only shook his head and said, No good, no good, and looked appealingly to me to give him hope that his life was to be spared. In the morning, I found a few other people assembled in front of the old Hutching Hotel, comparing notes and meditating flight to the lowlands seemingly as sorely frightened as the natives. Shortly after sunrise, a low, blunt, muffled rumbling, like distant thunder, was followed by another series of shocks, which, though not nearly as severe as the first, made the cliffs and domes tremble like jelly, and the big pines and oaks thrill and swish and waved their branches with startling effect. Then the talkers were suddenly hushed, and the solemnity on their faces was sublime. One in particular of these winter neighbours, a somewhat speculative thinker with whom I had often conversed, was a firm believer in the cataclysmic origin of the valley, and I now jokingly remarked, that his wild, tumble-down and engulfment hypothesis might soon be proved, since these underground rumblings and shakings might be the forerunner of another Yosemite-making cataclysm, which would perhaps double the depth of the valley by swallowing the floor, leaving the ends of the roads and trails dangling three or four thousand feet in the air. Just then, came the third series of shocks, and it was fine to see how awfully silent and solemn he became. 
is belief in the existence of a mysterious abyss, into which the suspended floor of the valley and all the domes and battlements of the walls might, at any moment, go roaring down, mightily troubled him. To diminish his fears and laugh him into something like reasonable faith, I said, Come, cheer up, smile a little, and clap your hands. Now that kind Mother Earth is trotting us on her knee to amuse us and make us good, but the well-meant joke seemed irreverent and utterly failed, as if only prayerful terror could rightly belong to this wild, beauty-making business. Even after all the heavier shocks were over, I could do nothing to reassure him. On the contrary, he handed me the keys of his little store to keep, saying that with a companion of like mind, he was going to the lower lands to stay until the fate of the poor, trembling Yosemite was settled. In vain I rallied them on their fears, calling attention to the strength of the granite walls of our valley home, the very best and solidest masonry in the world, and less likely to collapse and sink than the sedimentary lowlands to which they were looking for safety and saying that, in any case, they sometime would have to perish, and so grand a burial was not to be slighted. But they were too seriously panic-stricken to get comfort from anything I could say. During the third severe shock, the trees were so violently shaken that the birds flew out with frightened cries. In particular, I noticed two robins flying in terror from a leafless oak, the branches of which swished and quivered as if struck by a heavy battering ram. Exceedingly interesting were the flashing and quivering of the elastic needles of the pines in the sunlight, and the waving up and down of the branches while the trunks stood rigid. There was no swaying waving or swirling as in the windstorms, but quick, quivering jerks, and at times the heavy tasseled branches moved as if they were all being pressed down against the trunk and suddenly let go, to spring up and vibrate until they came to rest again. Only the owls seemed to be undisturbed, before the rumbling echoes had died away, a hollow-voiced owl began to hoot in philosophical tranquility from near the edge of the new talus, as if nothing extraordinary had occurred, although, perhaps, he was curious to know what all the noise was about. His hoot-too-hoot-too-woo might have meant, what on earth is that noise? It was long before the valley found perfect rest. The rocks trembled more or less every day for over two months, and I kept a bucket of water on my table to learn what I could of the movements. The blunt thunder in the depths of the mountains was usually followed by sudden, jarring, horizontal thrusts from the northward, 
often succeeded by twisting, up-jolting movements. More than a month after the first great shock, when I was standing on a fallen tree up the valley near Lemon's winter cabin, I heard a distinct rumble from the direction of Tenya's canyon. Carlo, a large, intelligent St. Bernard dog standing beside me, seemed greatly astonished and looked instantly in that direction, with mouth open and uttered a low, woof, as if saying, what's that? He must have known that it was not thunder, though like it. The air was perfectly still, not the faintest breath of wind perceptible, and a fine, mellow, sunny hush pervaded everything, in the midst of which came that subterranean thunder. Then, while we gazed and listened, came the corresponding shocks, distinct as if some mighty hand had shaken the ground. After the sharp, horizontal jars died away, they were followed by a gentle rocking and undulating of the ground, so distinct that Carlo looked at the log on which he was standing to see who was shaking it. It was the season of flooded meadows, and the pools about me, calm as sheets of glass, were suddenly thrown into low, ruffling waves. Judging by its effects, this Yosemite, or Inyo earthquake, as it is sometimes called, was gentle as compared with the ones that gave rise to the grand talus system of the range, and did so for much of the canyon scenery. Nature, usually so deliberate in her operations, then created, as we have seen, a new set of features, simply by giving the mountains a shake, changing not only the high peaks and cliffs, but the streams. As soon as these rock avalanches fell, the streams began to sing new songs, for in many places, thousands of boulders were hurled into their channels, roughening and half-damming them, compelling the water to surge and roar in rapids, where before they glided smoothly. Some of the streams were completely dammed, driftwood, leaves, etc., gradually filling the intricacies between the boulders, thus giving rise to lakes and level reaches, and these again, after being gradually filled in, were changed to meadows, through which the streams are now silently meandering, while at the same time some of the taluses took the places of old meadow groves. Thus, rough places were made smooth, and smooth places were made rough. But, on the whole, by what at first sight seemed pure, confounded confusion and ruin, the landscapes were enriched, for gradually, Every talus was covered with groves and gardens, and made a finely proportioned and ornamental base for the cliffs. In this work of beauty, every boulder is prepared and measured and put in its place, more thoughtfully than are the stones of temples. If for a moment you are inclined to regard these taluses 
as mere draggled, chaotic dumps, climb to the top of one of them and run down without any haggling, puttering hesitation, boldly jumping from boulder to boulder with even speed. You will then find your feet playing a tune and quickly discover the music and poetry of these magnificent rock piles. A fine lesson, and all nature's wildness tells the same story. The shocks and outbirths of earthquakes, volcanoes, geysers, roaring, thundering waves and floods, the silent uprush of sap in plants, storms of every sort, each and all are the orderly beauty-making love beats of nature's heart.